Hi, I'm Connie Loises. And this is Alex Gove. And this is Strictly VC Download. Hi, everyone. It's February 19th. It's late where we are, which is the Bay Area, after a week in Tahoe with the interns who skied while we worked and tried to avoid getting COVID. I wish we were kidding about that. So much is happening that if we had more time, we would have prepped a handful of stories for you, at the least. Turns out we don't, so you get two instead. But we do have an interview for you that we think you will enjoy with the enterprise investor Ed Sim of Bold Start Ventures, one of those rare investors who doesn't just talk about funding pre-product companies, but routinely backs them. More on that in a bit. But first, the news. Dan Primack reports today in Axios that Coinbase is closing in on a valuation in excess of $100 billion for its upcoming direct listing. That would value Coinbase higher than any tech company IPO since Facebook went public way back in 2012. To gauge potential interest, Coinbase started selling shares in batches on the secondary market beginning in January. These sales initially valued Coinbase at $54 billion, an almost 7x increase in valuation from its last round of $300 million in 2018. Nevertheless, Coinbase conducted a secondary sale on Friday that valued the company at $100.23 billion, almost double January's results. Investors are clearly excited about Coinbase's fundamentals. For the first nine months of 2020, the company reported $141 million of net income on $691 million in revenue, substantially higher than Facebook's net income and profit margin when it went public. However, the biggest driver behind Coinbase's soaring valuation is undoubtedly the skyrocketing price of BTC, which has risen almost 60% in the last month alone. Coinbase definitely faces some challenges ahead. The foremost of these could be the Biden administration. Yesterday, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen told CNBC that Bitcoin is, quote, highly speculative and could warrant more oversight. I think it is important to make sure that it is not used as a vehicle for illicit transactions and that there's investor protection, she said. One thing is for sure, Bitcoin investors don't scare easily. As of press time, the price of one Bitcoin sat at a whopping $56,208. Another big story, as it has been every week of this year, centers around SPACs and where we are collectively with these blank check companies that have no operations or business plan other than to acquire a privately held company using the money raised through an IPO. Is this party just getting started with early guests still trickling in? Are we at the point where it's loud and the music is thumping? Or did someone just barf in the corner, a sure indicator that it's time to find your coat and get the hell out of there? It seems like everyone already had a drink or two and is feeling rosy about their prospects. Just today, B Capital, the venture firm of Facebook co-founder Eduardo Saverin, registered plans to raise a $300 million SPAC. Mike Cagney, the fintech entrepreneur who founded SoFi and more recently founded Figure, another fintech company, raised $250 million for his SPAC. And former Disney execs Tom Staggs and Kevin Mayer registered plans for their second SPAC after announcing earlier this month that their first one will be used to buy a digital fitness specialist called Beachbody Company. Altogether, according to Renaissance Capital, 16 blank check companies raised $3.4 billion this week, and 45 other SPACs submitted initial filings this week. Perhaps it's no wonder that we're starting to see headlines, like one in Yahoo News just yesterday titled, Why Some SPAC Investors May Get Burned. 
Interestingly, such headlines could help puncture the SPAC bubble. So argues NSAID Professor Ivana Namovska in a new Harvard Business Review piece ominously titled, The SPAC Bubble is About to Burst. Namovska points to research showing that when more people adopt a practice, it will become increasingly widespread due to growing awareness and legitimacy. But when it comes to something that's more controversial, which it could be argued that SPACs are, third-party concern and skepticism also grows as the practice becomes more widely used. It's why you see headlines like that one in Yahoo Finance. Namovska has studied this phenomenon before, focusing on reverse mergers that, as she notes, surged in the mid-2000s, outnumbering IPOs in some years, and then peaked in 2010 before falling off a cliff in 2011. She says that she and fellow researchers collected a plethora of data on the use of reverse mergers and market responses, along with how the media evaluated these things. Of the 267 articles published between 2001 and 2012, which is a long time period, six were positive, 148 were neutral, and 113 were negative. And those negative articles grew as the number of reverse merger transactions involving firms with relatively low reputations increased. Eventually, the performance of these vehicles, plus the negative media coverage, put an end to the whole affair. The obvious question is how long it will take for that cycle to really kick into gear this time around. Anecdotally, much of the coverage around SPACs right now remains neutral. If business reporters are privately skeptical of SPACs, they're reserving judgment, possibly because, save for some highly concerning cases, like when the newly public electric truck startup Nikola was accused of fraud by short sellers, there isn't much to criticize yet. Still, there is growing evidence that SPACs don't perform as well as traditional IPOs, and that could certainly gum up the works, especially as shareholders hungry for shares of these newly public companies get that memo. The number of securities lawsuits filed by SPAC stockholders post-merger is also rising. Again, it all begs the question, are the days of SPACs really numbered? Certainly, the professor thinks so. And now our interview with Ed Sim, a co-founder of Bold Start Ventures, an 11-year-old New York-based venture firm that's been investing in SaaS and developer-first startups since before it was quite so fashionable to do so. Among the firm's early bets is the subscription email service Superhuman, Customer, which is a startup that specialized in customer service platforms and chatbots and that Facebook acquired in November for a reported $1 billion, and Sneak, a company that helps developers use open source code and stay secure and was valued at $2.6 billion during its last funding run in September. We talked with Sim about the firm's newest funds as well as where it's been making its newest bets and why. But first, a word from our sponsor. The Montgomery Summit on March 3rd and 4th is one of the nation's oldest and most prestigious conferences, convening investors and entrepreneurs from around the world to explore the intersection of innovation, technology, and capital. This year, we're going virtual and making our exclusive conference open to the public for the first time. We will have over 100 speakers, including Eric Young of Zoom, Alex Taylor Cox, Jim Whitehurst of IBM, Deepak Chopra, and Bill McDermott of ServiceNow. For VIP access to private company presentations, one-on-one meetings, and roundtable discussions, purchase a full access pass with the Strictly VC members only discount code of SVC-20RUN. Register now at www.monty.com. Ed Sim, thank you so much for joining us. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Awesome. It's always a pleasure to chat with you as well. It's been a while. 
I know, I know. It's been, what, two years since we saw each other? I think, yeah, in your studio in San Francisco, I believe. Yeah, time flies. Well, thank you again for making time for us. And so I thought we would start off by talking about your new funds. So you just raised $230 million in fresh capital. This is two years after, roughly, you raised your last two funds, which I think was $157 million. Yep. So I'm assuming the fundraising went pretty smoothly, given your portfolio, but tell us a little bit about it. Sure. Yeah, it was actually quite interesting for us because we technically raised almost all of it before the election last year and just are finally getting, we're fortunate enough to be well oversubscribed. And this fundraising was unique in the sense that we brought a lot of institutional investors on board. And prior to that, enterprise wasn't that exciting five or seven years ago, or even three years ago. This fundraising was much smoother because of the excitement around enterprise tech. I know it's hard to remember now, but you started off with a very small fund. Was it like $6 million or something like that in, what, 10 years ago? And we actually, really- you know what's funny? It's, I, I was looking back at it, and you covered our fund two, which was, I think, 15 or $16 million, But our okay. first fund, believe it or not, was 2010, and it was a $1 million fund. Oh, is that right? Yeah. So $1 million in 2010, and now 230 in two funds <laughs> in 2021. So one part is for seed in Series A, and and the second part is for opportunity? Well, we're earlier than that. So basically, I like to say that the first fund is for pre-product. And I know that people are always talking about pre-seed or seed or seed extensions, but we love talking to founders before they even start their businesses. Most of our best companies were partnering with founders when they just had slide decks and no product. These are companies like Sneak in the security space, which is, I think, worth $2.6 billion, or Customer, which Facebook said they're going to buy for reported $1 billion, Big ID, which is over a billion. So that is what the main fund is for, and that's one fifty-five. And the idea is to partner at the very beginning and do our pro rata and maintain that partnership through Series B. And the opportunity fund is $75 million, which is up from 45 in the last fund. And that's to make sure that we can keep partnering with these founders through the Series D and E rounds as they keep scaling. Ed, I remember from our past conversations that you're very focused on people that you've met over the course of your career. You've been investing in enterprise software now for more than 20 years. I'm wondering if you do any outbound work in terms of tracking people who've left an enterprise and maybe seeding them with an idea, or if it's more a matter of people know who you are, what you do, that you love technical founders and they come to you. I think about 75% of our investment opportunities come from our existing founders. They are sharing their friends with us. They are introducing us to, let's say, VPs of engineering. They're leaving their companies and they have this bug where they want to start a company. And the other 25% just comes from us meeting people because we have a head of talent on board, Natalie Ledbetter, and she is constantly filtering and meeting new candidates for the portfolio. Every person you meet can do multiple things. They may be an angel investor. They may join as a VP in one of your portfolio companies, or they may want to start a business. So being able to track these people before they start their business is probably one of the most important things that we can do, no matter how we meet them. Does this new fund still offer the opportunity for CTOs to invest in the fund fee-free? Yes, we do have a few of those. (laughs) But you know what's interesting is that we've built out a, a pretty wide network of Fortune 500 CTOs and CIOs. But as you know, Alex, some of them just move slowly, right? There's this whole new category of larger tech companies that have gone public or about to go public where 
the decision makers, you know, a head of engineering or a CTO can make faster decisions for the portfolio in terms of customer feedback and maybe even becoming a, a partner. So I think as the markets keep getting bigger and bigger, I think the opportunity set for customer traction gets bigger and bigger as these other companies graduate into a later stage company. Ed, when you're talking about technical founders, VPs of engineering at companies, these aren't necessarily people who have natural sales abilities, I would think. And sales is so important to a lot of VCs. They want to understand the story right away and they talk about how it's important to be able to recruit, et cetera. How do you think about that? Is it just very important to find a co-founder for them as soon as possible? Or are you finding enough of these individuals who can sell their vision? I would say the latter. The ability to tell a story, to recruit that first hire, to recruit your co-founder, to get us as investors excited. We are seeing just amazing talent all over the world, actually. So I don't think that's been a problem. And I think the other point that you make, Connie, is an important one. We like to say that we not only want to partner with founders before they start their business, but we want to help them become CEOs of the world's best enterprise companies. And that's a loaded word. But what that really means is having the patience and the understanding and providing the coaching and mentorship and even surrounding them from the very beginning with advisors or angel investors who have been there and done that before. These are people from the data dogs of the world or the figmas of the world that might want to write a small check. And it could be a check as small as 5 to 10K, but maybe want to dip their toes into angel investing that want to help the founders and share their knowledge. So bringing that village together from the very beginning and helping a technical founder learn how to be a CEO, I think that's a fun and challenging endeavor that we like to take on. And also, as somebody who doesn't follow the enterprise space particularly closely, to me, a lot of the companies that I see, well, I guess it's true across the spectrum of startups that I see, seem like they're doing similar things. So I'm wondering how you think about a startup and market size. I saw a couple of your newest investments are Spectro Cloud and is it NV0 or N- M0? Yeah. And M0. Yeah. <laughs> um, but maybe you could talk a little bit about what was attractive about those companies and why you chose them over other companies. And if you think about conflicts of interest within the fund. That's a great question. So there's two kinds of investments that we think about. One would be inventing a new category. And there's just a different way of thinking about it. So M0 in our minds is in that category. And they're leveraging off this new kind of space called infrastructure as code. And that's basically the ability to automate and wire everything from writing out the code from a developer and pushing your application into production. And they've built this system where a customer can easily create policies or governance so that a larger organization can say, from a security perspective, these are some rules and tight constraints, how you can deploy an environment or use AWS, or, or, or these are the credentials that have to be kept secret. And then developers have the ability to do self-service. And the way we think about it is that we typically will meet the founders and obviously we want them to be able to tell a big story. But also I think over time, we want to look at founders who really understand the pain. And in M0's case, the founders there had actually run into this situation where they were slowing down their development process and pushing code into production. And finally, they got frustrated and decided to start a new company. There weren't many other companies in the space at the time. The closest thing out there is is HashiCorp, which has the open source Terraform. But this was almost a layer sitting on top of HashiCorp or Polymi doing automation. So once you meet the founders, you understand the pain, you're thinking to yourself, how big can this be? And what I always like to say is, When you're looking at new markets, we want founders to have two things. One is the ability to zoom in 
to the pain to the user. And if they can't understand the user, it's really hard to build a product. Because when you're building a product, you're not selling to a company, you're selling to a user. And the other thing we think about is it's not the addressable market or the total addressable market you start with today, but it's what the market could be when you exit in three to five years. So having that ability to nail the pain and go very micro in the very beginning on a product and then zooming out, I think is really important. So in that case, we felt like the founders were building for themselves. We reached out to some of the portfolio founders and some of the CTOs that we know, and they all said, if this can be built, this sounds absolutely amazing. And then we started thinking about where the world will be five years from now or three years from now. And it was pretty clear to us that automation is here to stay and developer productivity is here to stay. Uh, so that was that whole M0 investment. Spectro was different because that was in a space that's already existing, right? We'll call it Kubernetes. And obviously there are the big cloud providers out there like AWS and Google and Azure providing some Kubernetes as a service. But these founders, Tenry and, and Saad, they're incredible. They had sold their last company in the infrastructure management space to Cisco. And they're basically reinventing how Kubernetes was going to be deployed and delivered. And what they really found was that a lot of the larger organizations wanted the ability to have incredible customization. They didn't want to build it themselves. And so they came up with a framework that was incredibly visual, almost like a consumer-grade interface that allowed these companies to point and click and set up their Kubernetes from the very beginning, and then actually have incredible fine-grained control on how to deliver it. So that was category number two, which we would say reinventing existing markets. And you have to have a balance of both if you want to succeed in the enterprise space. With Spectra, I get it that there was an existing market, but just drilling down a little bit on M0, how did you figure out the pricing for that product? The answer for that is that in the very beginning, when we're actually investing it, you really don't know. And what we were thinking about from the very beginning was some type of value-based pricing based on how many environments were deployed. Did we know what the answer would be on what people would pay for? We had no idea. But we did know that the pain was so high that some people were building a lot of custom solutions themselves. And we figured that if we could wedge our way in and have people stop building custom solutions and also have an upgrade path down the line, that there could be value. So the great news is that we're rolling out to customers as we speak. They are uh, all coming in through our developer marketing and developer evangelism channels right now. And there are people from all over the world using the system. So it's great to see them come out of over the last 18 months from having an idea with nothing built and having some real customers on board that are paying. How has COVID affected your investment practice, not only in terms of the pace of deals that you're doing, but in terms of the kinds of companies that you're looking at? For example, in cybersecurity, I, I would think that the fact that everybody is working remotely right now must have huge consequences for enterprises. Yeah. So to be honest with you, we haven't had much change in what we've been investing in. We've had some broader themes that from the very beginning when we started Bolster in 2010 that we continue to invest against. And one is developer first. We believe that they're becoming incredible decision makers. And with the rise of open source and even product-led growth companies, that if you can reach developers early uh, and get them to use products, that's a great way to win the hearts and minds of enterprises. So that will be one area. Regarding cybersecurity, it's always hard to chase things that are in the now. Our view is that you have to be there two to three years ahead of time before something like a COVID may happen, which you can't predict. And so basically, we've been very steady in investing these enterprise infrastructure companies and product-led growth SaaS. And just as a practice on the VC side, I'd say, look, it was really slow. I mean, I, I tweeted something out in early March just saying, prepare for a long haul here. Start managing burn. 
And we had to look at the existing portfolio when COVID first started for the first month, just to make sure that all the founders were well set up for something that could last. We thought at least through the end of the year, and here we are almost a year later, actually. So it's longer than we even thought. Get them financing proactively. So we went back and wrote checks into companies that needed more capital. And then fast forward, knock on wood, I think that many of the companies that we helped through that process ended up surpassing their renewed forecast. And once we got that out of the way, we ended up making, I think, eight net new investments last year. So the pace did not change from the prior year or the year before. And the other aspect would be that many of these companies were, were global. So Ed, you may not have been paying any more or less attention to the types of startups that you fund, but a lot of other VCs obviously have flooded into this sector. I'm wondering how that impacts your work. If you have to write bigger checks, if you're able to get as much of these companies as you used to. And also if it's harder to maintain your pro rata as some of these bigger players are writing bigger checks and competing more aggressively for these deals. Yeah, those are all great questions. And the short answer is that we are getting the target ownerships that we're looking for. We are able to earn our pro rata or super pro rata in a lot of situations. And then finally, I would say that it's been nice in a way that a lot of these larger firms are entering the enterprise space because there's plenty of funding from smart people for the founders that we back at the very beginning. I think on the flip side, to your point, everyone is doing seed and everyone's trying to get in early. The way I think about it is there's two kinds of investing these days in my mind. It's courage and conviction investing. And that's what we do when we back founders with no social proof and no product from the very beginning. And the other is access investing. And the joke that I make is that we hope that our courage and conviction bets become an access bet <laughs> so that uh, right. others kind of pile in behind it. And obviously there's a lot of work sitting there when you actually fund two technical founders and kind of help them accelerate that path to product market fit. What we've seen is that specialization really, really matters. I think there's a lot of amazing first check journalist funds that are out there. But for us, specialization matters because this is all I've been doing since 1996. This is what Boldstart's been doing since 2010 before people cared about enterprise. And I think as a business, we've been thinking about what do our founders want the most? So we pulled them and said, hey, what can Boldstart do better? And many of the founders came back and said, you're always our first call, even to the end. But sometimes we want more than a first call. So we started bringing on operating partners and founders onto the team. So Natalie Ledbetter is our head of people. And she's been amazing because she helped scale a prior company called Stash in the fintech space from seven to 300 people. And if you think about it, if you're a technical founder, and you haven't seen that scale before or been the leader there, there are so many things that you can learn. And so Natalie has a turnkey service and approach to helping founders set up the culture, set up a hiring engine, even set up the whole lead funnel and pipeline for that. We also brought on one of our founders from one of our portfolio companies in the developer space called Dark, where Ellen Chisa joined us as founder in residence. And we're super excited because she's not only writing checks, but she's also helping founders on product, helping them out in that first 180 days. I got the money, but now what do I do? How do I define those user personas? So if anything, we are just getting even more and more specialized because we know that what we're best at is partnering with founders when there's nothing built. If you look at the portfolio, I'd say that 75% plus of our companies end up graduating to A rounds. And we've helped create just last year alone, three unicorns from scratch working with the founders. You mentioned Natalie's helping these companies recruit and uh, I guess retain employees. Are employees harder to retain in this market? Are they hopping around or are these companies sufficiently complicated that it's not that easy to do? That's another great question. 
I mean, frankly, and I, I tweeted out recently that access to capital is not as hard as it used to be, but access to talent is. And then I would say the second thing is people will say, well, you can hire people remotely. Well, yes, you can, but that means now your competition is global. So I think the biggest problem for any company, and what I know is the enterprise space, but with all the capital flowing in, hiring and accessing talent and building that engine in the culture, I think are absolutely mission critical to build a world-class business. And those are the things that separate companies that scale quickly and companies that don't. It's not just the product. You need great people. And you need to think about it and build that from day one. So I would concur and agree with you. And, and that's where it starts with the founder. And then also why it's so important for us to help them think about what's next, what's six months ahead or 12 months ahead, and, and how to build that engine from day one. Ed, this is a little bit of a philosophical question, but when employees, when CTOs start companies, they're putting all their eggs in one basket, and yet the VCs have the advantage of investing in a portfolio of companies. Is there any way in which you can incentivize employees at your portfolio companies by offering them access to that portfolio in the same way that you have to some of your CTOs? We haven't actually done any formal thing where, for example, a employee at one company can invest in another company or, or, or done programs like that. I think that's actually a wonderful idea. However, I can tell you that we do have our own list of angels. And you know, in our perspective, and, and we'll call it our own enterprise angel list, let's just say with over 100 different folks based on what check sizes they like to write, what kinds of companies they like to partner with. And some of these are just regular employees as well that want to write 5 to 10K checks. And so what we can offer, and this is how we structure around, is that typically we'll come in and either lead or co-lead with another firm or just do it ourselves, but also leave room for angels, value-added angels, because we are strong believers that it takes a village to grow a startup. And we find that the people that are just dipping their toes and writing 5K or 10K checks are the ones that typically spend the most time and add the most value to a lot of these companies to help them maybe become the first customer or, or help them think about a product idea. So while we don't have a formal program, those who raise their hands and ask us, we do allow them and invite them into certain opportunities. And we think that with us being involved, it will actually de-risk the opportunity versus just investing in a random set of companies. Who are your LPs for these funds? And do you have any corporate investors? We actually have one corporate investor in the technology space. It's a small check. And our investors now are some of the largest endowments, foundations, funds of funds, and some family offices. And then we have a small sliver, just like the way we like to craft the cap table for founders with angels. We have a bunch of individuals who are CTOs at some of the Fortune 500 companies. A number of the CEOs in our portfolio companies are invested in our fund as well. And then we have some individual we'll call it GPs from some of the later stage funds who are invested in the fund as well. I always think that's interesting when VCs are investing in other VCs funds. It's a good sign. <laughs> yeah. Um, and a couple of years ago, you had said to the Wall Street Journal that for Bold Start, the enterprise blockchain experiment was over. I don't think you said those words exactly, but that was the sentiment. You'd said that, you know, after exploring the sector, you were seeing slower adoption of blockchain technology by corporations and so had backed away from that. I'm just wondering if that's changed. I think that's a, a hilarious question because we actually, in fund three, had an experiment where we partnered with IBM, who was the enterprise leader in blockchain, to figure out if there was a there there. And we, we didn't put a lot of capital into it, but we ended up investing just outside of that vehicle into a company called Blockdaemon. And Blockdaemon right now is growing incredibly fast. Basically, it's like Datadog and Stripe meets the blockchain. 
And we help anyone that actually wants to work with crypto coins to set up that infrastructure without having to develop the code, without having to host it and manage it. So there's almost like a managed service aspect to it. We call it nodes as a service. We actually ended up making five investments through that vehicle. Another one that we made an investment in through that accelerator was called Fireblocks, which is actually doing incredibly well right now as well. So I'd say that while the experiment is over, it was a worthwhile endeavor because we do have a, a couple of portfolio companies either through the accelerator or through our own portfolio that are making some noise. But frankly speaking, that was a, a few years ago and, and the market has been dead. So we haven't been spending a ton of time there. But as you know, Bitcoin and, and all the other currencies are rising again. So there is renewed interest in the space. But for now, we're really sticking to our knitting, which is developer first and horizontal SaaS opportunities. Ed, just as a smart guy, what do you think of this Bitcoin rise? It's up 60% or something over the last six weeks. Does that make sense to you? Put it this way, I have zero idea. All I, all I know is that I own some coins and I figure under that scenario, I assume I'll lose it all. And then the other thing I think about is scarcity is important. So I'm just holding it and seeing that if it does take off in a few years, I've had a little exposure, but I'm not really chasing that that down per se. There, there are other people smarter than me trying to figure that out. Well, you mentioned the, the companies in, in that fund doing well. Of course, you've mentioned other companies that are doing very well in your portfolio, including Sneak and Big ID. What does it take for an enterprise company to go public right now? And are you interested in various ways to do that? Or do you have a soft spot for the traditional IPO? Well, that's a great question. So I think that the bar to go public these days is $100 million of trailing recognized revenue which probably would mean that a company has probably 130 to 150 million of ARR. So I would say that's the bar for that traditional Goldman Morgan-led IPO that will get a lot of attention in the enterprise space. And of course, you've got companies that are doing 300 million plus of recognized revenue that are staying private longer. Look, we've been approached by SPACs so many times, and actually one of my companies explored that for a while. And the other aspect would be direct listings. So for some of these companies over time, we're going to keep an open mind for those. And I, I think what's interesting we want to track is kind of that hybrid direct listing opportunity where you can actually raise primary capital as well. And I think that's something new that came out over the last couple of months. So, you know, I think ultimately at the end of the day, you just want to make sure that you don't leave too much money on the table, right? You know, those, those big pops are definitely uh, nice in the press, but that means you're leaving money on the table. So I think finding the right balance is important. But I can tell you that there are way too many SPACs out there. So I do worry about that whole crowded market overall. It's really interesting. As we speak, there's a report out that Reid Hoffman and Mark Pincus are looking to take the flying taxi company Joby Aviation Public through one of their blank check companies. I, I guess it's flown something like 600 times. I don't have the context to know if that's meaningful, but it is a, a prototype. So there's a lot that's not baked here and, and could go wrong, unlike with a lot of enterprise companies. But it's interesting to me to hear that you're interested in direct listings. I guess I keep thinking that direct listings are maybe most effective with companies that have a consumer brand or that you know investors are more familiar with, which doesn't seem like it's necessarily the case with a lot of enterprise companies. It depends. Think about this. What if Twilio had not gone public and existed today and went on a direct listing or Atlassian? These are all product-led growth companies. So while they're not consumer, their brands are pretty strong and people know about them, like Twilio on the developer side. So in fact, probably many of these folks are the ones trading on Robinhood as well. So if you have these developer-first companies, the community is so strong for enterprise. There's very few moats in software because everything can be eventually copied at some point in time. But I think that you can build over time a rabid fan base, uh, a rabid community. And you can look at some of the companies out there that, that are doing well. I mean, look, 
Databricks was born out of open source. There's a lot of rabid users there, a lot of people starring it and using the product. So I think we're opening up to a brand new world in enterprise. And there's maybe this opportunity on the direct listing side, for example, if you have a rabid developer fan base that is in the millions. But no plans to raise a SPAC fund at Bold Start? Zero. <laughs> we, you know what? I'm kind of boring that way, Alex. I'm just, we're just staying the course. We love what we're doing and we don't want to be distracted. All right. Everyone's like, we're looking at it. We're thinking about uh, I, it. I, 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 want zero, I have zero interest in that, honestly. <laughs> 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 you can you can come back to me if you see my name in a SPAC, you know, or both starting a SPAC two years later, but right now zero interest. <laughs> That's great. Ed, I think we've kept you long enough, but it's always again really nice talking to you. We really appreciate you making the time. Yeah, thank you for covering all our funds. I really appreciate that as well and letting us get the word out. Thanks everyone for listening. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Strictly VC Download and that you enjoy your weekend. If you're in Texas or anywhere else in the country right now that's blanketed with snow or impacted by freezing temperatures, we're thinking of you.